0: Please stay tuned for important disclosure information at the conclusion of this episode.
1: Hi, and welcome to The Long View. I'm Jeff Patak, Chief Ratings Officer for Morningstar Research Services.
2: And I'm Christine Benz, Director of Personal Finance and Retirement Planning
1: for Morningstar. Our guest today is Cullen Roche. Cullen is the Founder and Chief Investment Officer of the Discipline Funds. In addition, Colin heads up Orcum Group, a registered investment advisory firm he established in 2012. Cullen also authors the popular blog, Pragmatic Capitalism, where he writes about a range of macroeconomic and investing topics. He's active on social media, including Twitter, where you can find him at at Cullen Roche. Cullen started his career as an advisor at Merrill Lynch and did a stint at an event-driven hedge fund before starting his RIA firm. He received his bachelor's degree in finance from Georgetown University's McDonough School of Business. Cullen, welcome to The Long View. Hi, guys. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's our pleasure. Thanks so much for joining us. So I wanted to start maybe with a little bit of background. Some of our listeners are familiar with you, but others might not be. So let's start off with a quick thumbnail. What do you do day to day and how did you find your way to where you are today?
3: Gosh, I mean, my story, how much time do you have? I was born on June 30th, 1980 in Georgetown University Hospital. I weighed seven pounds, eight <laughs> ounces, ounces. Nobody wants to hear about that.
1: You know, maybe the relevant uh, sort of tracing the arc of your career, what's brought you to where you are today?
3: No, it's actually interesting. My uh, thinking about how I've sort of come full circle, I started at Merrill Lynch in the early 2000s. And it's sort of funny to think back on my career because I was in the era where ETFs were just becoming a thing, really. And I remember studying a lot of the early iShares and spider funds. And I was enamored with them, really obsessed with these new products that had come out and it was funny because this was back in the era where we were still really stockbrokers for all practical purposes. We were still selling research and stocks and bonds to clients charging commissions, very very high fees, I mean by any measure. And I remember I had this vivid memory of approaching some of the other advisors in my office asking them about these low fee ETFs and I said, why do we sell these high-fee mutual funds and closed-end funds and stocks and bonds to people when we could be offering them these things that seem to provide all of the same performance but have much, much lower fees? And the answer from everybody was, well, we make money on the high-fee stuff. We don't make money on the low-fee stuff. And I remember having this very sort of dirty feeling almost in those moments where I felt like, I mean, it didn't feel like I knew I wasn't doing what was in the best interest of my clients. And so it was funny. I left Merrill probably, I mean, 18 months after having this realization and sort of naively started my own business and started doing the same thing essentially, but with a much lower fee structure. And that's essentially what I've been doing ever since now and it's interesting kind of coming full circle because I just launched a low fee global allocation ETF that is called the Discipline Fund. And now my firm is Discipline Funds. And so I've kind of come full circle where this world that I felt sort of you know dirty in and not like a full true fiduciary, I feel like I've developed something that is at least more so in line with all of that.
2: You write a lot about macroeconomic issues. So where do you think macro belongs or perhaps more importantly, doesn't belong in the financial advice and planning process?
3: Yeah. So to me, so much of this is about behavior. I think a lot of people study macro and they think they're going to become like the next George Soros or Ray Dalio. And they're going to use these ideas and beat the market and, you know, have some sort of, you know, high fee hedge fund type of allocation where they're able to generate tons of alpha and you know that sort of narrative whereas I take it from the kind of the opposite view that to me macro is really about understanding the world for what it is so that as we navigate it and we encounter all of the behavioral difficulties that are inevitable across the investing environments that we're trying to navigate that we behave better in essence because we feel more comfortable because we understand a lot of these big picture things that a lot of which are just incredibly, incredibly confusing.
1: You mentioned the behavioral aspects. You know, one of the things I think that occurs to Christine and I, you know, with the benefit of hindsight, is that people do tend to dwell on macro issues at what, you know, with 2020 hindsight proved to be the wrong times. I mean, based on your experience managing your practice and working with clients, do you agree? And in, in sort of what are the proactive steps that you take to try to counteract some of that so that they're focused on, you know, coming up with good plans with you and sticking to those?
3: Yeah, so much of it is education based. I mean, to me, it's not so much about understanding the world so that we can take advantage of these things in a sort of alpha generating way where we're trying to be able to time the market or things like that. Really, it's to me, so much of this is about being able to understand the world for what it is so that we don't behave badly. And I think that you know, one of the problems in, especially in the internet age, is that, to me, I think a lot of the financial media has an inherent conflict of interest, where they are promoting views and narratives that are inherently short term. And a lot of that is emotion based, a lot of it is hysteria that is based on either, you know, trying to drive eyeballs, or in a lot of cases, it's based on just bunk, a lot of misunderstandings about things and the causality of them and the potential outcomes. And, So to me, so much of macro is just about understanding the stuff for what it is so that as we try to navigate the day-to-day, you know, trials and tribulations of the financial markets that we're not tripped up and prone to all of these behavioral biases that can result in really catastrophic mistakes for people at times.
2: Do you think people have a greater propensity to fight the last war when it comes to macro issues compared to other types of issues that have a bearing on their financial success?
3: A 100%. You know, the Morgan Housel's book, the Psychology of Money had a great take on all of this where people tend to focus on the environment that they're born into. That's the environment that shapes them and it it shapes their psychology of how they end up navigating the next, you know, 10, 20, 30 years of their financial life. And so somebody who was born in say the Great Depression has a very different financial perspective than somebody that was born in the last 10 years, for instance. And so I definitely think that the tendency to sort of dwell on the big catastrophic mistakes of the recent past will shape people. And one of the things that's nice about macro is that if you study the history of macro and the markets in general, you can develop a greater understanding of the likelihood that unusual things happen, and even though you've sort of been born into a certain environment, the likelihood that the future is going to be completely different is extremely high on average.
2: So where do you think investors right now are kind of fighting the last war? What things are looming large in their psyche that, you know, were things that happened in the past and may not carry forward?
3: Gosh, I mean, we we tend to see a lot of the same narratives in the financial markets. People constantly think, for instance, that, I mean, in today's environment, for instance, the last war that I feel like I'm fighting endlessly is narratives about things like quantitative easing and is the US government bankrupt. And, you know, to me, these are narratives that tend to have a maybe a shred of truth, but are based on. Huge, complex issues that I think people tend to overrate. And so those are two of the big ones that I consistently running into and sort of writing about in a sort of, I think, mindlessly repetitive way, trying to just add some clarity to, you know, the way these things actually work.
2: We're coming off a decade where markets have kind of shaken off a lot of macro concerns and powered higher. Do you think that that is cyclical and macro will matter again in time, or is it more structural?
3: You know, it's interesting. I mean, the macro economy is usually very, very boring on average. I think Jason Zweig loves to talk about this on Twitter, about how if you wrote a really honest newsletter for the finance, you would basically say, Every day, you would say something to the extent of some stocks went up, some went down, not much happened. It was pretty boring on average. And that is literally probably 98% of all the macro economics that goes on across time. And so it's weird thinking about the way that people think about macro because macro tends to matter much more inside of these very acute periods where typically you have a shock to the economy and you have an event like the. Financial crisis, or say, like the pandemic, which, you know, these things to a large degree just sort of at least the negative extent to which they impacted the economy was very surprising and very rapid, very unpredictable. And so, macro always matters. Um, I would say that it matters much more in certain environments than it does in others, because in my view, the potential for behavioral biases become so much more exacerbated inside of specific shocking events than most of the time when things are just very boring.
1: We haven't had a prolonged recession in the US since the global financial crisis. That's a long time between recessions. So do you think we're due for one? And is the timing and cause predictable in your view?
3: No, I, I don't think anyone can predict when these big traumatic shocks are going to happen to the economy. And you know, to me, you don't need to be able to either. I mean, obviously, it would be great if you had some sort of crystal ball that could predict what these big sort of seismic shifts would happen. But to me, again, it's, it's nice to look at the world less like it's cyclical and more like it is this boring sort of trend. And what a recession really is and tends to be is the economy is just sort of chugging along. And for whatever reason, a pandemic or some sort of exogenous shock to the economy, things get shifted or shocked into a different environment. And these shocks can come out of anywhere, and they're very unpredictable. And I think it's one of the reasons why I think building sort of behaviorally robust portfolios is so important because we don't know what the future entails. And you sort of want to approach all of this with the idea of where, yeah, we're planning, you know, hoping for the best, but you prepare for the worst with your portfolio as well, because you never know. You know, I always tell people, yeah, the likelihood of going through like a Japanese style stagnant environment or a even a great depressionary type of environment is probably extraordinarily low but I wouldn't want to put together a portfolio that didn't at least to some degree prepare me for that and so to me that's what a lot of this is more about it's not about necessarily you know being able to predict the next recession or you know trying to time the market so much about this but building something on average that is robust so that Really, you don't need to be able to predict these sorts of things because you're always prepared for them regardless of that.
2: How's the consumer doing now compared to, say, just before the pandemic and also relative to where things stood coming out of the global financial crisis?
3: You know, I think a lot of people feel kind of frustrated by the last few years. I mean, obviously, it's been really tough for obvious reasons with COVID and everything, but I feel like a lot of people sort of think that, I mean, from a balance sheet perspective, the consumer is in phenomenal condition. Household net worth is higher than it's ever been. Debt ratios are super low. Um, A lot of these metrics are, are better than they've ever been. But I think people sort of feel like we're in this environment where we're not that dissimilar from 2019, but everything is more expensive. And a lot of people, depending on, you know, What you've been trying to purchase. I mean, if you're, for instance, a first time home buyer in this environment, I think you feel a lot worse than you did in 2019, a lot more frustrated. So it's a really strange environment. In a lot of ways, things are better than they've ever been. And I think people feel maybe not worse than ever, certainly, but not like the gains have been broadly distributed in the way that the data would make a lot of people think.
1: And you mentioned. One of those dimensions, which is housing, I did want to ask you about that. The housing market has been on fire by a number of measures. Do you see overheating in in residential real estate as a risk to economic expansion?
3: Well, gosh, I mean, yeah, it's the housing market's so interesting in the United States. There's been a lot of research on this that, in a lot of ways, the U.S. economy is just the housing market. You could say that so goes the housing market, so goes the economy, and this is one of the reasons why the financial crisis was so damaging. Was because having this asset class that was so broadly impactful across so many facets of the different you know economic sectors, when it declined in value the way it did, it was a huge, huge deal. And so you know, again, I don't, I don't do a lot of. Trying to predict short-term things, I actually think of housing as a very long-term sort of asset class, and I generally tell people, you know, you, if you're thinking of buying a home, you should think of it almost like it's a 10 or 20-year bond, and you better plan on holding that thing to maturity. So if you're speculating on this thing and you're planning on flipping it or something in the next few years, you're really you're speculating, you're doing guesswork on what the future asset price is going to be, rather than taking a more measured and evidence-based view of what the future returns are likely to look like. And so housing is, is strange. I mean, in the current environment, and yeah, to some degree worrisome because we've had this really, this huge boom that is in a lot of ways reminiscent of the financial crisis boom. You don't have the same degree of speculation from people whose balance sheets were poor. So again, in a lot of ways, the balance sheets are better than they've ever been. and So you know, the quality of borrowers, for instance, purchasing homes these days is very, very high. So you, you probably don't have the same level of risk that you do in the period like the 2005-2006 era. But it's worrisome to think of of what the potential ramification of, say, a a five ten or sort of a, a 1990, early 1990-style housing recession would look like. Because it's hard to imagine that that wouldn't cause a meaningful negative impact on the U.S. economy if you had- some give back from what we've had in the last few years.
2: You've talked about why it's a mistake to liken the U.S. government's balance sheet to a household's, which is something that deficit hawks tend to do. Can you explain why you think that's not a valid comparison to make?
3: Yeah, so it's, you know, this is a, finance is filled with fallacies of composition. People taking their personal experiences, and then extrapolating them out to either you know, everyone else or big sectors. And the, the government is just a huge sector. When you actually look at the government, the, the entire US government is comprised of thousands of different entities, millions of employees, and you know, all of the state and local governments. And this is a huge, huge sector inside of our economy. And the problem with thinking about the government like a household is that, well, think about the household sector in the aggregate. Think of all of our household assets and liabilities in the aggregate. Well, do we pay those assets and liabilities back over time? No. In fact, in the long run, the Cullen sector relies on the Christine sector to be expanding over time. If I'm paying down my debts, the likelihood is that the aggregate economy needs somebody else to be expanding their balance sheet. And so, In the long run, what you tend to see is assets and liabilities expand over time. And hopefully, we're we're producing the real goods and services that where you end up with some net worth. You end up with real stuff. You end up with the physical real stuff that we all want that makes everything valuable in the long run. But the kicker is that at a broad aggregate sectoral level, none of the sectors pay back their debts in the long run. And in fact, we should expect them to expand. Now, The government obviously is a much trickier one because the right size of the government is a pretty hot topic of debate all the time and i don't know what the right size of the government is but it's not surprising that over time the aggregate government balance sheet and their assets and liabilities would expand across time simply because in the long run the economy gets a lot more complex. The rules need to be changed and updated over time. You have entities that need to be created at times to provide the regulations and you know the court systems and the things that keep a lot of things functioning somewhat well. And so I don't know what the right size of the government balance sheet is, but in the long run, we actually probably shouldn't expect the government's balance sheet. To get paid down like an individual's might because in the long run at the aggregate sectoral level by definition it'll expand as the economy expands in all likelihood
1: i wanted to jump to another hot topic which is inflation and also we'll talk a bit about interest rates and after a long dormant period i suppose you would say we've seen inflation really pick up recently i I think it's hotly debated but in your opinion what caused that pickup, and and do you think it'll stick?
3: Yeah, it, you know, COVID was a really strange event in the way that it it constrained supply chains in a very specific manner. You had the government shutdowns, which a lot of which resulted in, for instance, a lot of the things that are made in China and Vietnam and Malaysia and places like this. In in and around the world, where these factories were literally shut down. So people weren't making things. But at the same time, the governments around the world, and especially the US government, we were spending an incredible amount of money. We were running huge deficits $7 trillion over the course of the last two years. And so you kind of had this perfect recipe for inflation to pick up because you had, I mean, at a very basic macroeconomic level, you had rising demand because you had more money being pumped into the system and you had lower supply because you had all these supply shocks. And so it's really multifaceted. It's a very, very complex situation. There isn't, you know, a lot of people like to blame either the government or just the supply side issues and kind of break it down as like this sort of binary issue when it's really multifaceted. It's very complex. And will it stick? I don't know. That's a great, uh, I wish I knew the answer. My guess is that, I mean, looking forward, I think that a lot of people have predicted sort of sustained very high inflation or some people, you know, Jack Dorsey was on Twitter a couple months ago saying that hyperinflation was coming and that, you know, he got like a million likes on that tweet, which is crazy. I think that sort of thinking is wrong. I, I tend to think that the economy is very different than it was in, say, the 1970s or any real high inflationary environment. And that's mainly because of big sort of secular headwinds, things like demographic trends and globalization and technology, these are all huge macro deflationary long run trends, which is why I think we've seen a lot of the low inflation and low interest rate trends of the last sort of 30 years, because these these big macro trends are, these are huge dynamics at work that you need enormous government responses to offset these big macro headwinds. And so outside of that, I mean, if I were to pick what would cause very high sustained inflation. It would, it would be if we were running $3 trillion deficits every single year for the next 20 years, well, maybe that would cause inflation. But you're actually going to see a lot of this reverse in the next couple of years. So you're going to see a big fiscal giveback, for instance, in 2022. And so it's not safe to say that this is going to be transitory in the way that the Fed was kind of talking about it all being transitory. But I think it's safe to say that the people who think that a hyperinflation is coming or that a very high inflation is coming, I think, are not fully understanding both the secular headwinds and the short-term dynamics that caused the high inflation of the last couple of years, which are likely to start reversing to some degree, in large part because the government is going to rein in spending to a large degree in the next couple of years.
2: The bond market seems pretty sanguine about inflation. It continues to price in very low inflation expectations. Are bond investors too complacent, in your opinion?
1: You
3: know, I think the bond market largely takes their cues from the Fed. And so the way I like to talk about the way that interest rates basically work is that I think of interest rates as being similar to, if you think of it like someone walking a dog, the Fed is the person holding the leash, and they let the long end kind of, the long end being the dog, the dog is able to sort of wander from side to side, but it's still in some control of the Fed to some degree. But if you think of the leash back to the handle, the Fed has an exact amount of control over where that handle is at any given time. And so they control that. And By extension, they have a huge impact on the long end of the curve because they indirectly control the long end through the leash. And so I think that what the bond market is essentially saying is that the Fed believes that they have tight control of inflation in the short end and that the long-run expectations are likely to look more like the pre-COVID trends than this new regime where we're going to see a very high inflation. I think it can seem sort of irrational that interest rates are, are low and inflation is high for now. But in the long run, I wouldn't be shocked to see that inflation ends up moderating some and the bond market ends up looking pretty smart in the long run.
1: What approach do you take when it comes to setting an inflation expectation for clients you work with, for instance, a retiree who is trying to plan how much they can spend over the rest of their life? And to what extent do you think it's important to to sort of personalize that inflation expectation that you set based on their consumption basket, so to speak?
3: It's a great question. It's a really difficult one from a financial planning perspective to answer because everyone's inflation is different to some degree. And it brings in a necessary element of forecasting and trying to predict the future that is very tricky for everybody because nobody really knows like I I always tell people I have no idea what really causes inflation. We have all these very basic models for what causes inflation, you know, more money chases the same amount of goods or something like that. But inflation is very very complex, very very difficult to predict and from a planning perspective, I mean me generally I take sort of an extrapolative expectations perspective meaning that you can look at historical rates of inflation and extrapolate that into the future to some degree. But I also think that it's not irrational to take that approach of hoping for the best but planning for the worst. It makes logical sense to have inflation hedges in your financial life so that you do have protection from, say, a 1970-style environment if it were to actually occur. So obviously, all of this is very customized and personalized. But you know, if somebody, for instance, if somebody owns a home, I would argue that that is, a, in general, a very good inflation hedge in the long run. So someone who owns a home versus someone who rents, they have a very different potential asset allocation going forward because they have different inflation hedges built into their portfolios there because one person has real assets and the other one really doesn't. And so this is all very personalized. But I In general, taking that approach of hoping for the best but planning for the worst, I think is a sensible approach within the realm of of using a historical average.
2: What kind of returns do you expect from the stock and bond market over the next decade? And how did you arrive at that?
3: A lot of guessing. (laughs) No, the bond market is actually at least somewhat easy to predict. I mean, you can look at the current Interest rates, current yields on like an aggregate bond fund. And you can forecast that out pretty reasonably um, over the course of the next five, six years. The bond market on average is like a six-year average instrument. If you took all of the bonds in the in the US market. And so, you know, that's not it, it's not super hard to predict what the bond market is going to do. The stock market is where a wrench gets thrown into everything because the stock market has all of these variables that impact the values that aren't really based on anything all that fundamental to some degree. And so, you know, for instance, multiples. Multiples can change over time just because people's, I don't know, access to the stock market changes over time or because the, the relative importance of the stock market changes, interest rates change. And so you have all these things that, all these variables that can cause stock market returns to change over time that are extremely unpredictable. On average, I like to think of the stock market like it's a 30-year high-yield, high-quality bond. And if the stock market were to pay out, if they were to distribute all of their profits every year, all the entities in the US stock market, for instance, that thing would yield pretty safely something like 5 to 7% per year. It doesn't do that on average every year, obviously, or consistently every year. But on average, over a 30-year period, if you applied sort of a 30-year duration to the stock market using that sort of thinking, you could expect to earn something like 5 to 7% per year. So that's sort of the foundation that I start from. I think it's safe to say in an environment like this where, I mean, typically, at a minimum, when multiples are this high, when- things like PE ratios are as high as they are today by many metrics at all-time highs or very high in a historical sense, um, the stock market has tended to generate lower future returns. I don't know. People have been saying that for a long time. I've been thinking like that for a long time. So I don't know if that is necessarily the right methodology to take. But I would say that one thing that is consistent is that when multiples are this high, the stock market tends to be more volatile. So you tend to, for whatever reason, you tend to be having more of these shocks that occur across the stock market. And even though you you could look at, for instance, like the last five years, and the stock market returns have been phenomenal, but there were some pretty harrowing moments across that period. I mean, if you, I know people, I have clients, a lot of people have come to me because they got out of the market in March of 2020. That was such a frightening environment that even though the stock market has done very well, behaviorally, you could argue that the high multiples create what is a very challenging environment because there's the potential for this more volatile type of return. So you're, yeah, you're getting these higher returns from higher multiples, but you're also getting a higher level of risk, which makes it behaviorally more difficult to navigate.
1: That's a good segue to another question that I had, which is your expectation for bonds. I think you laid out your thinking clearly, look essentially at kind of what the yield to maturity across a range of different tenors of bonds is, and that'll give you an idea of what maybe the next seven to 10 years is going to look like. That's not a very palatable return to earn, but I think I've I've read pieces where you said that's not a reason for people to ditch their fixed income. Maybe you can explain your reasoning there, why should they hang on to fixed income when it's expected to return so poorly?
3: Yeah. So to me, I think that the bond market is essentially a principal hedge in a portfolio. It's something that is cash-like to some degree, but over specific periods of time, will pay out returns that are mathematically superior to cash. And so it provides the same sort of principal protection in a portfolio that cash would, but it, it gives you a little bit of extra return across specific periods of time. If you have the, I mean, the patience and the proper time horizon over which to wait for the bond market to actually pay out its income. And so to me, I think a lot of people tend to think of the bond market as being an inflation hedge or trying to use it as an inflation hedge. And I think that can get you into trouble because I think I actually tell people I think you should expect to lose money in real terms in the bond market, but that the bond market isn't there to provide you with a real return. You have other assets in your portfolio that will provide you with a real return. The stock market tends to be a very good inflation hedge. Your your home tends to be a very good inflation hedge. And so there's other ways to get inflation hedging. But you have to blend that, in my view, with principal hedges, in essence. And so because these other instruments, because they earn this higher return that will better protect from inflation, they also expose you to higher potential downside. And so the bond market is really a behavioral hedge there. I mean, a bear market in the bond market is a totally different animal than a stock market bear market. And so I think that people need to put these things in the proper buckets, depending on their personal situation so that, they have the right types of stability in their portfolio so that their portfolio is behaviorally robust so that they can navigate different environments where, yeah, the bond market is going to be pretty boring over the next 10 to 20 years. But the stock market has the potential to be extraordinarily frightening at times over that 10 to 20 year period. And you know, it's interesting to look at a period like the 1940s to the 1980s because interest rates rose pretty much the whole time, from about 2% to 14%. So if you if you kind of think that we're in like the 1940 period right now, and you're worried about rising interest rates, well, it's interesting to look back at a balanced portfolio of 50% stocks and 50% bonds compared to a 100% stock portfolio. Because the 50-50 stock bond portfolio, it generated a lower return, but The bond piece actually generated 3% per year in nominal terms using a constant 10-year Treasury bond portfolio. And more importantly, it reduced the standard deviation of the portfolio by 50%. And so for somebody who was potentially exposed to a lot of behavioral biases over this period, the 50-50 portfolio, yeah, it generated a lower return. But it generated a much more stable return, despite the fact that the bond market generated pretty poor risk-adjusted returns, especially compared to like the bond market that people have become used to of the last 40 years from sort of the 1980 to 2020 period, where risk adjusted returns in the bond market were crazy high. And so even using this period of, of rising rates, bonds still did what they should do, which is they provided some insulation from stock volatility, which that to me is what diversification of the bond market provides an investor with
2: what's your take on the torrent of money that's going into private equity and credit it seems like there's a theoretical case to be made for it but it also seems like some of it is performance chasing behavior mixed with people fleeing bonds when perhaps they shouldn't what's your take
3: yeah i think that's right it's um you know a lot of these markets have become democratized to some degree they're much more open to people and so it's not surprising that these markets, at least to some degree, have earned higher returns because to a large degree, they've been inaccessible to a lot of people. And so now you're seeing more money flow into these markets. The valuations are, are going up and it's becoming harder to find the higher returns in those sorts of markets. So, And a lot of that is just, it's, it's easier now to access your venture capital and private equity and private REITs and things like that in large part because the internet has made all of this stuff so much more democratized. So, it's sort of the same effect that's going on in the stock market to some degree where the stock market has become a lot more democratized over the course of the last 30 years really. And so it's there's been just a torrent of never-ending money flooding into the public equity market simply because it's easier to access.
1: I think it's probably fair to say, and correct me if I'm wrong, that you don't think the market is especially target-rich right now, just given that valuations are elevated and yields are paltry by a lot of measures. And I think you already alluded to the fact that we can probably expect – more volatility going forward. But it doesn't seem like you're very fond of cash. In fact, I think I saw a piece from you recently where it looked like that was at sort of the lowest point in your sort of pecking order of different potential investment opportunities. But wouldn't it make sense now to keep some powder dry? How come you don't like cash?
3: It could. You know, because I approach so much of this from a behavioral perspective, I've become a big advocate of bucketing methodologies over time. And Bucketing things specifically in a very behaviorally consistent manner. So I like an asset liability matching perspective when it comes to like financial planning and building portfolios, meaning that basically, I like to take a portfolio and apply specific time horizons to certain components and apply that in a way so that people are really behaviorally robust across that specific bucket in a certain asset class. So for instance, somebody who has a million dollars who is planning to put 200,000 dollars down on a home in the next 5 years well that person has a need for a specific type of liquidity bucket where cash could be totally fine for that i mean you know if they don't really know the period in which it was 5 years they're going to want to put the down payment down on the home they need the optionality to be able to access funds and know that they have a certain amount of principal for that down payment at a specific unknowable time. And so, yeah, using this sort of bucketing approach, it's a way to build a very behaviorally robust asset allocation because you can take things and put them into specific time horizon buckets where cash could be totally fine for somebody. I'm not, I'm certainly not against, I actually personally, I hold a lot of cash because I sleep better with it. So I tend to build portfolios for myself that are actually relatively conservative based on my age and things like sort of traditional uh, asset allocation modeling that a lot of people would look at and say, oh, well, he should be holding a lot more aggressive assets. But for me personally, I like holding a lot of cash because it just makes me comfortable. So everyone's different. I mean, in general, looking at this from a From a real return perspective going forward, cash looks especially bad right now just because inflation has bumped up. And going forward, if you have the time horizon to take more risk, you should be stretching yourself out a little bit more because you should be trying to maximize your real return to some degree the best you can. But it's tricky within the constraint of behavioral biases and short-term needs and things like that. There's potentially nothing irrational about holding cash, especially if, if you're someone who likes the optionality of being able to, you know, have a little bit of dry powder to wait for, who knows, a, a, an environment where you think you might be more behaviorally comfortable getting more fully invested. That, that makes a lot of sense to me.
2: We want to switch over to talk about your new fund, the Discipline Fund ETF. Can you talk about its makeup and what you sought to achieve in launching it?
3: Yeah, so I've always been a big advocate of sort of Boglehead style, very simple, low fee, very diversified portfolios. I typically, for instance, most of my portfolios that I run over the course of my last 15 years or so have been very simple, typically five or six fund type of portfolios that are sort of bucketed in the way that I was describing before. But the problem that I would consistently run into with people was one, Bad behavior and two, tax inefficiency of rebalancing a multi fund portfolio. And so I ended up, I've known Wes Gray for a long time. We partnered with Wes about, I mean, gosh, it's been 18 months now. And Wes helps people build ETFs. And so I went to Wes and told him about this idea. And the beauty of the ETF approach is that. We built what is essentially a global fund of funds. And so we're taking a whole bunch of essentially Vanguard and Spider and iShare ETFs, super low fee, super diverse funds. We put them all into one fund. And the kicker with this sort of a fund is that what it really does is I typically build portfolios that are basically always 40-60 or 60-40 type portfolios. And what I kind of started thinking over time was I love a 40-60, and I love a 60-40. But what if I could behaviorally rebalance these portfolios in a way so that I was better protecting people at times, let's say, for instance, right now, where valuations are very high, where the potential for behavioral mistakes is potentially high. What if we could be the 40-60 now with the potential to rebalance systematically in the future, let's say, when the equity market declines in value? And things potentially become more attractive. Could we rebalance into the 60 40, and could we do it in a tax-efficient manner where you don't have the friction that would be problematic from running a multi-fund portfolio? And that's the beauty of the fund that we built: is that it's a fund of funds that is able, because of the structure of the single ETF, it's able to rebalance inside of the fund without capital gains distributions, where we can be a little bit more dynamic trying to better insulate people from behavioral mistakes without sacrificing the tax inefficiency of, say, having a big stock allocation right now, where if you want to rebalance it, you could rebalance it back to your original weighting. You know, If 60-40 has grown into 70-30 now, you can rebalance that if you have, say, a traditional sort of three-fund, boglehead-style portfolio. The problem is, You incur capital gains when you rebalance that in a taxable account. And so you run into this problem where you want to maintain a consistent risk profile, but the problem is you end up paying capital gains inside of a more aggressive satellite position inside of your portfolio where it ends up being very tax inefficient across time. And so this fund, because it's a fund of funds, it solves that problem and applies a more, what I believe for a lot of people is a more behaviorally robust Asset allocation where you're not just simplifying things and also maintaining a low fee diversified approach, but maintaining something that hopefully will keep people more comfortable across time.
1: Yeah, I wanted to ask you if Vanguard were to go out, and I'm just using Vanguard as an example, they're a low cost provider, they were to go out and create an ETF version of one of their popular balanced or target date funds. How have you thought about the edge that you would have in the discipline fund ETF? Is it in the way it rebalances some of the leeway that you have there?
3: Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's interesting, you know, actually we thought about just approaching Vanguard or I actually, weirdly, I did actually go to, I'll I'll leave them unnamed a large uh, fund provider. And we pitched an idea of doing a fund of funds, basically just using the, the tax efficiency concept of it. This was several, several years ago, probably five years ago, They have since started a fund like that. (laughs) Um, but it's basically it's a static allocation fund. And so basically doing something that is is like a 60-40 where they're doing a fund of funds, and the problem with a fund like that, or you could say, you know, the potential problem with a fund like that is that you're using a core position there where you typically you need other buckets. Most people need a liquidity bucket, maybe maybe you want a more aggressive bucket just you know because the core pieces you know if you're using sort of a traditional core and satellite approach and you're using a liquidity bucket and then a more aggressive bucket or you know other buckets to be able to take advantage of like tax loss harvesting things like that or whatever it might be you still have this problem where the satellites grow out of balance with the core because the core is fixed and what our fund does which is really unique is that it inverts the core and the satellite So what I mean by that is that the discipline fund typically, let's say that its benchmark is about a 50-50 stock bond allocation. If the stock market were to go through a big boom and you had, say, a three fund, a liquid bucket, an aggressive bucket, and a core bucket, what will happen in your traditional core and satellite approach is that your aggressive bucket will grow a lot. And you'll have to rebalance that. You'll still have to incur capital gains because your core piece, even though it's a fund of funds that's tax efficient, it's a static allocation. So in aggregate, your total allocation has become unbalanced because of the aggressive satellite. The discipline fund inverts that so that what happens is that as your more aggressive component expands, the discipline fund is internally rebalancing against the trend occurring inside of the aggressive satellite. And so not only is it keeping your risk profile more consistent across time. But because it's rebalancing in this sort of counter-cyclical way, it's reducing the need to rebalance the aggressive piece, which means it's reducing the need to pay capital gains across time. So it's essentially, because of its counter-cyclical rebalancing component, it's providing you with this ability to essentially be more tax-efficient while maintaining your risk profile in a multi-bucket type of portfolio.
2: You've defended target date funds in the past, but it sounds like you have some misgivings about how they work for people who are navigating their retirement years. Can you walk us through that?
3: Yeah, I mean, I I love target date funds. I actually, you know, if I were to describe my entire methodology, I would describe it as sort of a discipline-based investing approach. And I love, I would describe target date funds as a very discipline-based investing style because typically they create. Something similar to the asset liability matching methodology I was talking about before, where people are given a very specific time horizon where they kind of know. And this is why 401k investing works so well, too, is because people are given a specific time horizon. They kind of know, okay, I shouldn't touch this money until the year 2045 when I retire. And they're given this goal and this exact sort of end date where they kind of know, okay, this is the point where I can start to tap into this. And that reduces the potential for a lot of the behavioral biases and the tinkering that will result in poor performance in the long run for a lot of people just because they're they're trying to do more than they should be with a portfolio. And so it instills a very discipline-based approach. I think the the one criticism that I would have of target date funds, and this is probably more just being a function of someone who is overthinks everything and is probably too involved in our industry because you know, we spend a lot of time debating things that nobody else really cares about and probably in the long run are not that important. But for target date funds, they apply a sort of generalized, most of them apply this at least, a general sort of age and bonds rule where I think you can get into situations where that rule is probably overly general and in a lot of cases, I mean, I would argue, for instance, that bonds, they're essentially a form of term insurance in portfolios. I think most people actually probably shouldn't even own bonds, but there's a period in most people's lives, typically the age of like 55 to 75, where you will transition into retirement and you're going to go through this really psychologically difficult transition in your career and your income generating period of your life where this will hyperexpose you to behavioral biases, making this transition. and Bonds can be very useful in that sort of a period as really a hedge, an emotional hedge, because they will reduce the likelihood of instability in the portfolio. And Michael Kitsis calls it a bond tent. Um, I like to call it a zoom glide approach, because for somebody who's basically under the age of like 55, You can basically zoom into a huge bond position around this period preparing for retirement. And then you can kind of take a glide path approach, shaving down the bond portfolio as things become more certain over time. Because in a weird sort of morbid sense, things become more uncertain as you reach your age of death. But I love, I I don't want to give people the impression that I don't like target date funds or that... um, Uh, I I don't want to sound overly critical because in general, I love anything that applies a very robust behavioral edge for people, which target date funds do, I think is a fantastic way to allocate assets. So 60, 40 funds in general, very broad diversified funds that are low fee and apply all of the sort of evidence-based understandings that we're all aware of. Yeah. You can tinker with all this stuff and, you know, get brain damage trying to overthink it all. But, um, It has to be customized at the same time, though. So for specific people, a target date fund might be inappropriate, whereas in a more general sense, they're fantastic.
1: In closing, on a personal note, you have two young children. How has parenthood changed your personal and professional perspective? Do you look at the world in ways maybe you didn't before you had kids? And and does that manifest itself in how you think and and the kind of advice you give clients?
3: Yeah, I I remember how great it was to sleep. (laughs) Um, but no, I, you know, it's funny having kids, uh, you become a lot less selfish when you have to think about the future of all the other people in your world and the, your time horizon changes completely. I've in a weird way, I've become hyper sensitive, not just to my financial health, but to my literal health because I, I now worry about my kids not having a dad at some point in their future. And so it's made me much more aware of, I think, being more thoughtful about the way that my own actions will end up in the long run impacting other people, because it's much more magnified now that the things that I do that could potentially harm me in a weird way could, in a in the long run, have a huge catastrophic impact on my children. And so it's It's made me probably even more boring than I already am in a lot of ways so that I'm more financially prudent, more financially thoughtful, and um, hopefully a little bit better.
1: (laughs) Well, this conversation's been anything but boring, Colin. It's been a real treat to have you in The Long View. Thanks for sharing your time and insight with us and our listeners. We really enjoyed chatting. Thanks again.
3: Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. Happy New Year, everybody.
2: Happy New Year. Thank you so much.
1: Thanks for joining us on The Long View. If you could, please take a minute to subscribe to and rate the podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can follow us on Twitter at sYouth1, which is S-Y-O-U-T-H and the number one.
2: And at Christine underscore Benz.
1: George Cassidy is our engineer for the podcast and Carrie Gretchik produces the show notes each week. Finally, we'd love to get your feedback. If you have a comment or a guest idea, please email us at thelongview@morningstar.com. Until next time, thanks for joining us.
0: This recording is for informational purposes only and should not be considered investment advice. Opinions expressed are as of the date of recording. Such opinions are subject to change. The views and opinions of guests on this program are not necessarily those of Morningstar, Inc. and its affiliates. Morningstar and its affiliates are not affiliated with this guest or his or her business affiliates unless otherwise stated. Morningstar does not guarantee the accuracy or the completeness of the data presented herein. Jeff Patak is an employee of Morningstar Research Services, LLC. Morningstar Research Services is a subsidiary of Morningstar, Inc. and is registered with and governed by the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission.